DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation, or the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's the author of Hidden Mountain, the Secret Garden, a theological contemplation of prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of conversations, we discuss the letters of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. The letter that we'll be exploring was written by Sister Elizabeth of the Trinity. The first letter was from Mademoiselle, but now she is a sister. That's right. Um, this, is, this is almost a year later that she's writing to her friend's mother. They are all part of the same uh, parish, and the parish is less than a half a mile from the house where Elizabeth grew up and from the convent. And everybody lives in this little neighborhood, and so that's why we see such a, a rich exchange of, of letters. They're walking by this monastery almost every day, so they can pick up letters and they can deliver letters. It's just a short walk. This is to Madame de Sordon. Yes. The letter begins with a, a little bit of an exchange that somebody's asked for prayers, who is also known to uh, Madame de Sordon. And so she's responding to that request right now. She's recently been professed into a religious life uh, just after her profession. So with that profession having happened, uh, this whole time she's been receiving letters for requests for prayers, but now gets stepped up a little bit. And so she's trying to respond to some of the requests that she's getting. To Madame de Sourdon, February 21st, 1903, Carmel, Saturday evening. Dear Madame, Before your letter, I received a few lines from Madame de Mézières. A cry from the heart my soul has really responded to, I assure you. When you write to her, would you tell her that we are praying fervently in Carmel, and that I never once attend the divine office without commending to God the health of the dear patient who causes so much concern to those who love him. I understand this distress so well, and God above all understands it. You remember, dear Madame, the distressing hours I have known myself. I will never forget how good you were to the poor little one who thought she was about to lose her mother. What painful memories. They are the bond, as it were, that unites our souls. Those are God's times. Père Didon says, Any destiny that doesn't have its Calvary is a punishment from God. Oh, then, 
if we knew how to surrender ourselves totally into the hands of Him who is our Father. I recommend your intentions to Him. Do not doubt Him, dear Madame. Abandon everything to Him, as well as to your little friend. She will be your advocate, for her mission is to pray unceasingly, and you know how much that holds true for you. She is so happy, with a happiness that God alone knows, for He is its sole object, a happiness that closely resembles that of heaven. During this Lent, so divine in Carmel, my soul will be especially united to yours. I am asking God to show you the sweetness of His presence and to make your soul a sanctuary where he can come to be consoled. Will you let me enter there and, with you, adore him who dwells there? I kiss my dear Françoise, whom I love so much, and your sweet Marie-Louise. I pray fervently for them, and I am always all yours. Don't you feel that? Your little friend, Sister Emma. Elizabeth of the Trinity, RCI. Would you tell my dear Mama that my soul is one with hers and that I love her with all my heart? It's a very tender little letter. This is a very close family friend. They travel together and they've been on vacations together. And now they have a mutual friend's husband is sick and so they're joined in prayer. Madame de Sardin, in fact, is she feels distressed. She feels upset because somebody's so sick and she's she's looking for relief from that. And it calls to mind for Elizabeth that her own mother was sick at one point and that it was the prayer of Madame de Sardin, who helped her family get through that. And so now the roles are a little bit reversed, and Elizabeth is praying for Madame de Sardin's friend. This is all about what you might call the communion of saints, and there's some remarkable insights into just what the communion of the saints is. Those first few lines in that second paragraph were, as you've just noted, Anthony, the sharing of pain, the sharing of suffering, and how that's a bond that unites. Isn't it interesting, the words that she would use there? Mm. What painful memories. They are the bond, as it were, that unites our soul. Quoting a priest, she says, Any destiny that doesn't have its Calvary is a punishment from God. Now, this is peculiar for us and our culture in particular, because we look at, we've come to see any kind of suffering as quite the opposite of anything that could possibly be good in somebody's destiny. If you are privileged in our culture, you don't get Calvary. You go from uh, one good time to the next. I'm saying this to you, Chris. I'm, I'm right now in California, not very far from Hollywood, and the whole industry there is kind of oriented around the promise of that kind of life, a life without Calvary. 
what Elizabeth is saying here to her friend in the midst of her distress is that not to have Calvary in your life, that mystery of pain and distress in your life, is to be in a certain way cursed to be punished by God. Uh, the absence of suffering in our life, not to have it, means we've been deprived of a great blessing. There are a couple reasons for her to say this. One, if we're, you might think about the Beatitudes of Jesus. In the Beatitudes of Jesus, Jesus calls blessed those who are suffering, those who are poor, those who are thirsting, those who are hungry. These, in the Christian worldview, in Jesus' worldview, these are the truly blessed. Mary, before he was born, declared blessed are the lowly and the hungry, that they would be the ones who would be raised up, while the people who were mighty and well-fed and taken care of, they would be the ones who got cast down. And the reason why is because this is the way God has chosen to work in the world. God pours out his blessing on the poor and lowly and on the suffering. And so this means that if we want the blessing of God, instead of running away from suffering, there's a certain way in which we must look into it, accept it, embrace it. In accepting and embrace it, what I mean very particular is it's not that it's good in itself, but in that suffering there is a blessing from God that he wants us to have. So this is true if uh, we have an illness or someone we love who has an illness, rather than running away from our disease and pretending we don't have it, God would rather us kind of face it and deal with it, uh, rather than running away from our loved ones who are sick and leaving them alone to deal with things themselves. God would prefer that we share that suffering with them. When we do, when we let love guide us into the suffering of another, when we let faith guide us through our own suffering, there is always a great blessing in it. And this is what Elizabeth is trying to point out to her friend, Madame Dussardin, in this. You know, Anthony, as you were speaking, I couldn't help but recalling a couple instances in the lives of two saints, one being St. Francis and the other, Catherine of Siena, in which they had a particular repulsion against certain illnesses. I was thinking of St. Francis and the leper. And one moment when he actually, through grace, looked at that and then responded in love by kissing the sores of the leper and giving that to God. And Catherine of Siena, the, the same type of thing, where she was trying to help someone who was very, very ill, uh, and, their, and their, her wounds of this person were so ghastly that it was so repelling to Catherine of Siena that she did something similar in to that instance. I don't want to go too much more into it. But it's one of those cases where um, we have to, when we look upon our suffering, even our repulsion from it and entering in with others, it's one of those breakthroughs that can maybe only come through grace. Very beautiful. And what wonderful examples. Elizabeth's words here in this very next sentence, in fact, speak into exactly what you're saying. Oh, then, if we knew how to surrender ourselves totally into the hands of him who is our Father. When we have confidence and trust in God in the midst of suffering and believe that somehow there's a blessing for us in it, even though we can't feel it and we don't see it, but we just choose to believe it, 
even to the point that we're able to surrender ourselves in it. God doesn't leave us kind of out there. It's not like it's, it becomes a meaningless thing. Uh, what Elizabeth is saying is that the more we surrender ourselves to our Father, there's a blessing waiting for us. And those who understand this, this is the secret of, of petitionary prayer. A lot of people don't think that petitionary prayer actually achieves anything. They think it's it's a way of relieving one's anxiety when you don't can't do anything else. You just pray to God and hope that he takes the thing away. For Elizabeth of the Trinity, this total surrender to the Father, if we knew how to do this and learned how to trust him, we would find in very powerful and real ways, if not hidden ways, we would find his providential loving hand at work in our lives in the most extraordinary circumstances. Elizabeth, in fact, uh, asks uh, Madame de Sedan to abandon everything to him, as well as your little friend. Elizabeth is saying that she is going to help her friend make this act of abandonment to the Father by her own intercessory prayer. And so this is where that communion of saints comes in. By prayer, we can be bound to each other in such a way that someone who's having to go through an immense amount of suffering or terrific distress or, or an incredible sorrow, we can be bound to them in such a way that we actually help them carry it. And by helping them carry it, help. what that means is help them be surrendered into the hands of the Father. Help them trust that God the Father has a plan that's being worked out, even though we don't understand it, even though it's very painful. His plan is being worked out. And Elizabeth wants to take Madame de Sourdain right into this place. Anthony, can you speak to maybe kind of strange, peculiar thing that can happen sometimes when we attempt to pray and unite ourselves with others who are suffering in that sometimes it becomes more about the drama of interceding for others and what we feel. It's almost like a false humility or a false engagement. Like somehow I'm going to pray for you and there's so many words and we take so much on as opposed to that simplicity of entering into prayer and trusting and walking with the Father. Am I making sense on that? Yeah, there can be a magical approach to petitionary prayer in which we think that somehow we're manipulating God or making him change his mind or reminding him of something that he, he forgot. Back St. Thomas Aquinas, the second part of the second part of the Summa, question 83, explores each of these kind of uh, objections to prayer. And he says, you know, no, we don't remind him of something he forgot or manipulate him into doing something that he doesn't want to do. Petitionary prayer works on the basis that from all eternity, God has desired to lavish certain blessings upon us. And he's chosen, however, where some blessings he gives us without our asking. For example, you're probably breathing just fine and chances are you didn't you didn't pray and intercede for the breath. He just gave you that breath and that heartbeat right now as a pure gift. Um, there are other blessings, however, that he's chosen to reserve and until we ask for them. He's not playing a game with us, but he wants to have a real relationship with us. 
a heart-to-heart. He wants us to be aware of his personal presence. Whenever our prayer is kind of a grasping sort of thing, where we feel like we're trying to change God's mind, probably it's ventured away from being something truly relational and, and rooted in love. Probably we're engaged in a pretty insipid kind of magical thinking. And I, I don't think that's pleasing to God. What Elizabeth's talking about here is a relationship with God the Father. And she is praying to help Madame de Sardin get through this time of distress. But if you read these words, what she's praying even more is that Madame de Sardin might realize in a deeper way a relationship with God the Father, that she might get to know him. And Elizabeth's prayer are, is directed first and foremost to that reality. This coincides with the, the teaching of St. Thomas. The teaching of St. Thomas is that, is that we offer petitionary prayers as part of the eternal plan of the Father, that they're the way that we can participate in his plan. They make our relationship with him real. And what characterizes that relationship for St. Thomas and for all the saints is our love, our friendship love of God. And so petitionary prayer is an expression of friendship love. Uh, Elizabeth is trying, sees it, in fact, as our mission to pull Madame de Sardin into that, the logic of that. Anthony, do you think that in some ways what you've just described about how the Father will allow sometimes these types of moments to occur, that for us to be able to pray and petition it reminded me of that moment in the Passion where Simon of Cyrene had to come forth and help Jesus carry the cross. It, it helped Jesus, but it, he Simon is an important person for us. It turned out that moment, helping Jesus in the moment, but he became a universal sign for us to be like him, or even Veronica wiping the face of Jesus. It, not only did they assist in that moment, but there was a greater purpose. And Simon became an icon for the rest of us. Is that part of that mystery? It, it is. And in, in, in a certain way, your observation goes with the question that we just answered. And, and that is, there can be a tendency on our part when we pray for another person that where we're kind of a little bit turned in on ourselves, how good we are to be praying for the needs of everybody else, mm-hmm. as if we were doing God a favor or, you know, or them a favor by taking the time to offer something up for them, that, that this, was, this was something that uh, primarily we were giving and sacrificing. Well, it is true. There's a nature of a gift to it. We are giving. We are sac- sacrificing. But the extraordinary thing isn't our gift or the sacrifice we make in praying for somebody. The extraordinary thing is that we have the unique and unimaginable privilege of having been chosen by God for this purpose. Um, Not because we deserved it, not because we merited it, uh, very rarely because we actually have a particular gift to pray, but just because God loved us so much that he's chosen to implicate us in his eternal plan. He's chosen to provide a gift through our prayer for no other reason 
then he loves us and he wants us to be part of the great work that he's doing on earth. And so he's made some part of his plan dependent on our prayers. And, and again, it has nothing to do with how good we are or how wonderful our sacrifices are. It has everything to do with how good he is and how super abundant he is in his blessing that he should want to implicate us in his great work. And so for those who are praying for other people, the proper way to look at the mission to pray for others is to realize how privileged you are to be selected by God to pray for this soul right here and right now. God could have showered out graces for this soul in this situation in a myriad of ways, but he's chosen to do it now through your prayer. And the reason why he chose to do it is because he loves you. And he wants to give you the privilege of working with him to make all things new. And if we take that more humble attitude, the attitude of a son or daughter who uh, wants to help, help the father achieve the wonderful work of a new creation in our lives and in the lives of those we love, it kind of helps us overcome a certain kind of pride that it's like a fly in the ointment. It, it ruins the whole thing if we pray out of that pride. Hmm. One of, uh, I think, one of the most compelling moments in this particular letter, Anthony, is where she implores her friend, do not doubt him, dear madam, abandon everything to him. And then she says, as well as to your little friend. Mm -hmm. She's really saying, abandon it, give it over to God, but also to your little friend. And that's part of the beauty of intercessory prayer. As we choose our intercessors and ask them to pray for a situation, God is himself is relieving our anxiety. And part of the anxiety we have around any given thing is learning to trust him, not to doubt him. Part of the mystery here also is to realize that he has sent people to us and that they are gifts for us. And this is true just in general in the Christian life. We're going to see in the letters of Elizabeth of the Trinity, it's especially true of uh, St. Elizabeth herself. St. Elizabeth is a wonderful intercessor for the spiritual life. And she, she's a wonderful intercessor for the difficult things that happen in life. And she, she actually will see even her very last letter that we'll eventually get to. Her very last letter is all about, it increases the joy of my heaven, she tells her friend Charles, if you ask me to help you. And that mission that she realized she would have in heaven, she's already ha carries it with her now. The life of heaven and the life of faith we have now are not substantially different things. They're substantially the same because uh, both life here on earth and the life that is waiting for us in the world to come, in both instances, we are grounded completely in God and in the mission that he has for us. And so Elizabeth's already speaking out of that deep conviction here, and it's a beautiful thing to see. Intercessory prayer works best when it's in this kind of mode of friendship, because a friend is able to help us carry a burden more than anyone else can. They understand us, and Elizabeth understands Madame de Sardon. Anthony, I think you've hit on something that kind of is one of those mysterious 
and I mean it in the beautiful term of mystery, that can happen sometimes in our prayer. When in our prayer, in that quiet, or even in moments where the unexpected, we feel called to pray for someone. And we may not, may not even identify it as we're being called to prayer, but it's a person that will come up in our heart, come up in our mind, our imagination. And we may even think, why do I even care? What is this? And this is a distraction. Or maybe it's somebody who maybe even irritates us to a certain point or someone that we're worried about. But it comes forward and the danger, can I say it that way because of what you've just spoken to us, is for us to dismiss it as mm. opposed to turning whatever that is, whatever the mystery of that is, just turn it right around and to, to offer that to the Father. That's, that's beautiful. Every invitation to prayer, every time we feel our hearts prompted to pray, whether for our friends or for our enemies or for, even for people we don't know, that's always a moment of actual grace. And it might be we're, we're in the middle of something else that's extremely important. If we'll stop and just for a moment offer that prayer we feel prompted to make, there's always a rich and beautiful blessing for us in the midst of it. But likewise, though, when we kind of put God off and we don't respond to the grace of the moment, God will probably continue to ask us and prompt us to pray sometime in the future, but the blessing that he wanted to give in that moment, for that situation, but also for you personally, you've deprived yourself of it. That grace will never come again, not in the same way. It will be a different grace that you get, that you're able to pray for the next time. And that's part of the unique privilege and the greatness of our prayer. God is immense in his mercy and the grandeur of his being. He never repeats himself twice. And so the prompting we have to pray right here and right now will never come again in the same way and we'll never be able to secure the same grace as we can right here and right now. And yet, if we respond to this grace that we have, that we can ask notwithstanding whatever happened in our past or all the ones that we passed up, if we'll say yes to what's going on right now, that is always a moment where we draw especially close to him and where we can help others draw close to him too. It's a moment of intimacy and realizing his presence. So anyway, to go back to what you're saying, what you've just drawn attention to, Chris, is the reality is this call to prayer, this prompting to pray in our hearts. We must never be too busy to pray. We must always be ready, no matter what we're doing, to stop for a moment and to offer a prayer when God moves us to when we're convicted that this is something that I need to do right now. We should not ignore those invitations from the Lord. Also, true, Anthony, it, it's so lovely, the gift that she is praying for her friend, that um, I'm asking God to show you the sweetness of his presence and to make your soul a sanctuary where he can come to be consoled. What a lovely thing to pray for, for anyone. Mm. Well, when she speaks like this, she's not speaking out of a kind of theological vacuum where she has a pious thought that she hasn't experienced. She's just finished saying to her, she, her little friend, Elizabeth, is so happy with a happiness that God alone knows. He is 
its sole object, the object of this happiness, a happiness that closely resembles that of heaven. She's connected right now her life of prayer and sacrifice in Carmel with the life of heaven. And in fact, we know because we've studied her writings that one of the things she'll struggle with is what is the relationship between heaven and what I'm experiencing right now? Because what I'm experiencing right now is so happy. Is this the same as heaven? We see that there are places where she scratches out in her notepad, this happiness is heaven. And she'll mm-hmm. say, well, it's like heaven. <laughs> she'll correct herself. But you can tell there's a tension in her thought, like, like she can't believe how wonderful God has been to her. Well, this sweetness that she's experiencing, and it's more than a sweetness, it's, it's a happiness, it's a depth of joy that is deeper than a feeling. This thing that she knows, she wants her friend to have. When you have something good in your life, what you want to do is share it with others. There's a way in which right now in these lines that you've just read, Chris, Elizabeth is, you could say, evangelizing her friend, her friend who already knows Jesus, her friend who already goes to, probably goes to daily mass, in any event, lives a good, pious life. She's evangelizing her, saying, look, I found a deep and profound happiness, and I want you to have the same thing. Do not doubt him, dear madame. Abandon everything to him, as well as to your little friend. She will be your advocate, for her mission is to pray unceasingly. And you know how much that holds true for you. She is so happy, with a happiness that God alone knows, for he is its sole object. A happiness that closely resembles that of heaven. During this Lent, so divine in Carmel, my soul will be especially united to yours. I am asking God to show you the sweetness of his presence and to make your soul a sanctuary where he can come to be consoled. Will you let me enter there and, with you, adore him who dwells there? So in other words, Elizabeth, in all her happiness and joy and possessing God in Carmel, a joy so great that it is like, she believes it's like the joy of heaven. And she's going to unite herself to Madame de Sedan so that the joy that she knows, Elizabeth knows, she can share. Um, At the same time, in this unity, I'm asking God to show you the sweetness of his presence and to make your soul a sanctuary. The presence of the Lord is a real thing. This isn't something imaginary or something that you picture in your mind. You can do that. You can use your imagination. But the presence of the risen Lord in our midst right now is a presence we access through faith. All we need to do to realize the sweetness of God's presence is to begin to believe in it right here and right now because he's told us himself, Lo, I am with you until the end of time, meaning he's present to us right here and right now. We might not be able to feel him. It might be difficult for us to imagine or intuit him. We definitely may not understand him. And yet right here, right now, no matter our circumstance, he is present with us. If if we are suffering, he's suffering with us. If we are, are happy and rejoicing, 
he's rejoicing with us. If we're lonely, he's lonely with us. He never abandons us. And that's the sweetness. People who choose to live with a perpetual act of faith in God's presence, who choose to believe that he has not abandoned them, but that he is with them right now. And so who, who perpetually make these little acts of faith. I believe you, Lord Jesus. You know, Lord Jesus, I trust in you. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for being present to me right now. These little small acts of faith that we make by prayer. Those who choose to do, do this, what they're doing is they're realizing the truth. And that is our bodies, our hearts are temples of the Holy Spirit. When we make ourselves and choose to live in the awareness by faith of, of the presence of Jesus, the Holy Spirit always gives us Jesus. When we choose to do that, we have realized God's divine dream. That is that we be a sanctuary, his presence, that we be um, almost like you could use the word, uh, like a living tabernacle of his presence in the world. And this is where Elizabeth has this really powerful zinger. There's two elements to it. When you're a sanctuary, where he can come and be consoled. When we're making those acts of faith, Chris, we're making space in our hearts where God's ache and thirst for humanity is somehow relieved in us. When we do this, especially in the midst of, of trials and, and difficulties, it provides a very beautiful sense of, of relief for his, his own thirst for humanity because for a little bit anyway, He's found that in us. But Elizabeth goes the next step here. Will you let me enter there, meaning the sanctuary where God dwells in your heart? Uh, let me enter there and with you adore him who dwells there. To adore the Lord, the word adoration, um, believe it or not, it, uh, the, it speaks, if you break it down etymologically, the word means to kiss. It's a veneration of our heart. Uh, a kiss in the ancient world was to breathe your, your soul into another. And in adoration, we surrender our whole hearts to the Lord. And Elizabeth wants to invite her friend into the sanctuary of her own heart. And she wants to go there with her friend to adore the Lord who is present there. This is probably one of the most beautiful descriptions of what the communion of saints is all about and what the mystery of petitionary prayer opens up in the Christian life that I've ever seen written about anywhere. It's powerful. My soul will be especially united to yours. I'm asking God to show you the sweetness of his presence and to make your soul a sanctuary where he can come to be consoled. Will you let me enter there and with you, adore him who dwells there. It reminds me of in the liturgy of the Eucharist that what we now call the sign of peace was once termed the kiss of peace. Mm. That, and when you described it that way, when you broke it down, it's that sharing of souls in that community. What we're doing is when we look to the other next to us and we offer them that, that kiss of peace, that sign of peace, we're essentially uniting our souls with those communion of believers in this Eucharistic celebration like Elizabeth is so sweetly asking her friend to share in, don't you think? Yes. 
Yes, you know, going back to the kind of the theology of a kiss, when what you're sharing with your kiss is that I want to give myself to you. I want to give the gift of who I am to you. And in adoration, uh, what we're doing is actually giving that gift. Elizabeth wants to be in a communion of adoration with her friend, uh, Madame de Sardin. She wants Madame de Sardin to realize the presence of the Lord in such a profound manner that Madame de Sardin will want to surrender her whole her whole heart, her whole life to the Lord in this kind of kiss of love, a kiss that is realized through an act of faith in his presence, that he is actually that lovingly present to her. And moreover, Elizabeth is saying, I want to share this with you. This is such a beautiful thing. I want to be part of this with you. Will you let me do this? It's just exquisite. It also it kind of reveals the keep using the term mystery here, but it reveals the mystery of the cloister, doesn't it? I mean, of the Carmelite charism, what we see as a group of women behind the convent walls, this type of relationship they not only want to have with individuals, but it's the relationship they want to have with the community of believers, what they want to have with the world. That's so very true. And so this is one of the reasons why contemplatives in the church are so important for us. It is true that we can all do this uh, in our prayer to a certain extent, but the reality is for those of us who live out in the world, we our, our lives aren't exactly ordered to the depths of this kind of prayer. And so we're constantly fighting against all kinds of distractions that, that would pull us away from, that, uh, from this, this depth of prayer. But to be contemplative you don't always get this kind of prayer when you're contemplative. Some, uh, there's a, a lot that goes into helping a community just function. But purpose of the community, the reason why the community has come together, is precisely for this kind of prayer. And they offer it for each other, but they also offer it for the world, which includes their friends and family. Anyway, the gift of a contemplative vocation today uh, right now, uh, um, there are a lot of people who just don't think it's pragmatic, who maybe thinks, think of it as, as, as if it were a waste of life. But Elizabeth in this beautiful letter is showing it's not a waste at all. It's all about what's most human and meaningful and real. It's about what's most touching. And, and though you're separated by the walls of a monastery and by a discipline of life, you're just as implicated, if not more, in the, the trials and the struggles of others, you love them more, not less. You're in a deeper solidarity with them, not less. Your life has not been diminished, it's been enriched. This is the beauty, the greatness of contemplative life. We can all taste it from time to time, no matter what our state of life is. But the contemplatives, they get to drink deep from this deep dug well. It's a gift for the whole church when they do. I kiss my dear Francoise, whom I love so much, and your sweet Marie-Louise. I pray fervently for them, and I am always all yours. Don't you feel that? Your little friend, Sister M. Elizabeth of the Trinity, R.C.I. Would you tell my dear Mama that my soul is one with hers, and that I love her with all my heart?
final thoughts, Anthony? Well, um, this letter, it's been beautiful to share it with you. Again, it's about petitionary prayer. It's about adoration. It's about the presence of the Father, and it's about His loving goodness in the midst of distress. I think that a lot of us today are facing different kinds of distress and that sometimes we can get caught up in it. Even to the point that we caught up in our distress, we lose our sense of peace. And God never wants us to lose our peace. Uh, and I think Elizabeth's message here to her friend is, remember his presence to you. I'm interceding for you. He wants nothing but the very best for you. And so adore him. Remember his presence and adore him. Surrender your existence to him and watch the beautiful things that he can do. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anthony. You're very welcome. Thank you, Chris. This has been great. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or download the free Discerning Hearts app located at the iTunes and Google Play app stores. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.